Welcome back to the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Ed Rudisell, and we are dropping this episode a week later than usual. My apologies. Uh, although the last year has been a little weird with my scheduling, you know, and, uh, you know, depression and all those fun things that come along with the pandemic. But uh, just got back from my first vacation in two years and was able to make it out to uh, Hawaii and Oahu. And uh, I'm dragging a guest along with those travels. I didn't want to uh, kind of intrude while we were um, meeting on the premises there, but I've got uh, Kyle Reutner from Kohana Rum on the show today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Since you just had some of it, I'll give you some more. How, how about an aloha? Aloha. That's right, man. I What, a, what an amazing place you live. You know, uh, I, I now understand why everyone that moves or that <laughs> visits there wants to move immediately. Like it just a, just a wonderful place, you know, um, although for me, it was like the opposite thing everybody talks about the beaches and i'm not really a beach guy you know i don't surf i don't i burn really easily but man the interior where where your distillery is that's my speed oh it's gorgeous gorgeous oh yes so you have been in hawaii pretty much your whole life right uh no about half of it i've been okay. here for the okay. last 20 years all right so, yeah, uh that'll give you a good uh, idea as to how old i am i guess but yeah it's a it's about half my life out here so 20 years, that backs you up pretty much to the beginning of your uh, bartending and service industry hospitality career, if I am if I remember right. Yeah, I mean, with with very little exception of like teenage years, busting tables and silliness like that. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, I got I got right into thrown into the deep end of the hospitality scene here in Hawaii pretty quickly right when I got here. That's pretty amazing, man. Um, You've worked at some kick-ass places. Kind of, how did you get back behind the bar initially? What drew you in that direction? In 20 years, that kind of uh, pulls you back prior to the the craft cocktail wave. So that's when we were all bartending in clubs and sports bars. For sure. Yeah, uh, honestly, I I was dating a young lady who worked at Planet Hollywood. So that'll put this in perspective. There, the, uh, now you just told everybody how old you are. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, it was one of those, like, she was a bartender over there. I started working, waiting some tables, not at her place, but nearby. And we were at a concert together in Chinatown before Chinatown in Honolulu was cool. And this bartender reached out to me and she's like, our, our bar back just quit. Do you want to come in for an interview tomorrow? You seem pretty cool. And so that's how I got behind the bar. I was like at a concert randomly and I just showed the hell up. You know, I would say more often than not, guys and gals our age, when you ask that question, how we got it, that's how it is. It was like there was an emergency and I got thrown behind the bar. Now you have apprenticeships and, you know, Uh (laughs) but yeah, then it was like, uh, do you know how to mix two liquids together? You're behind the bar tonight. (laughs) And, and can you do it faster than the other person who wants your job? That's it. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, I mean, that's you, I know you worked, uh, you kind of your last restaurant bar that you worked at was the pig and the lady, which gets high accolades. And I was, I visited on your recommendation. I'd also been recommended by numerous people. Um, so I had to check it out and, Man, I don't I don't say this lightly. That might be one of the best daiquiris I think I've ever had. And your rum was in it. Yeah, I mean, we're uh, obviously those are the homies. So right. I, I, they're going to they're going to do it the right way. But Matt Kua uh, and his team over at the Pig and the Lady are just world class. The way they took uh, my floundering bullshit 
bar <laughs> and turn it into something fantastic is just amazing. I, I, I adore Matt and uh, I, I definitely did not set him up for success, but he took it. In <laughs> so. You know, I mean, I, when I order a daiquiri, I just, you know, usually I don't get anything that's like too much of a riff on a daiquiri. I'll either get a classic or I'll get something else off the signature menu. And, uh, but it had the key ingredient that I always get if I see it on the menu, which is pandan. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's in like cocktails all over the place in Southeast Asia. It's one of my favorite flavors. And it's so hard to describe to people that aren't familiar with it. And, uh, and yeah, it had the, uh, the, the, uh, you know, Okinawan sweet potato infusion in there. So it's like this gorgeous pink purple. And uh, I was like, just thinking about all those infusions that we do or have done in the past. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, how much rum are you throwing away every time you do an infusion? Because potatoes <laughs> are just going to soak up everything. Seriously, like right? a 10% loss every time you're, you're yeah. infusing it. It was worth every bit of it, you know, because <laughs> it, it really hit on, on all the uh, cylinders that I'm looking for, you know, and uh, it well done. I mean, it was not yours, but it had your rum in it. And that was a really key uh, component there. And because I do prefer my, uh, daiquiris with agricole or Jamaican. So, um, well, that's a nice little, uh, segue into what you're doing. Um, so before we get into the nitty gritty of Kohana, um, what is it that uh, you guys make there and, and, uh, what's the kind of, uh, mission statement? Yeah. So I'm the general manager Uh, after years of hospitality, service, servitude, and joy. Uh, I had the opportunity to go farm sugarcane and work with a team uh, in central Oahu making a uh, sugarcane-based rum that we call Hawaiian Agricole Rum. And our name is Kohana, the Hawaiian words mashed together, ko meaning sugarcane and hana meaning work. So it's the work of the sugarcane. So we grow all of our own heirloom sugarcane, crush it, ferment it, distill it, bottle it. How long of a project has this been? I, I know the distillery has been going for what, five or six years? Is that right? Yeah, about, about seven now. Seven yeah. years. But so, surely it took a, a, a time to kind of get this thing off the ground. Oh, for sure. So 2009 was the first cane that was sort of sourced. Uh, right. When I say sourced, I mean begged for cuttings from a botanical garden. Uh, yeah, to start yeah. Going. So, so yeah, 2009 was the moment for actual like rubber to road. Mm-hmm. And then there was obviously like paper and pencil and napkins and beers and all of those mm-hmm. things and years of, you know, different people's experiences. You know, the, the two founders have very different experiences in different parts of the world and different industries. And so, you know, there was you know, Kashasa talk and then the Caribbean. And then there's, you know, our, our sort of the last spaces, both of them were before they came here were uh, in the Southwest and then in Tokyo. So really, really unique uh, founders that were able to kind of bring some, some of their own to Hawaii, which has been really cool. Well, you mentioned the cane. So let's start there because we are talking about uh, Hawaiian agriculture. And uh, we'll just completely avoid the controversy over the use of the the term agricole. Um, but at least we, we know what's in the bottle, right? I mean, we yeah. obviously, I mean, for those listeners out there that don't know what I'm talking about, that is a uh, word that uh, Martinique uses on their AOC and their um, protected designation. So um, using it outside of that is akin to saying California champagne. Now there's debates on both sides of that. So like I said, we'll leave that alone because those arguments (laughs) are very easy to find 
get yeah. on Ministry of Rum or whatever on, on Facebook and you can find plenty of it. But yeah, um, what I do want to talk about is the cane, because you said uh, back in 09, you were kind of trying to source cane or they were trying to source cane. So uh, was is it not growing everywhere? You know, like there's been a sugarcane industry in Hawaii for a long, long, long time, longer than, than there has been a rum industry in Hawaii. So, yeah. uh, you know, uh, and I know you and I talked about this a bit on the premises, but was there not just sugarcane everywhere anyway? Yeah, no, there's not. Because, I mean, th- think about Hawaii agriculture. When the Hawaiians got here a thousand years ago, they farmed what they needed. When Western Contact got here, you farmed some of what you needed, and then you were trying to export crops as well. And that's really where like the sugarcane industry really booms, right? Like the sugarcane industry is the first agricultural industry that ends up helping, you know, push colonization here. Um, You know, obviously there's the missionaries and all the other things, but the sugar industry uh, was, was the one that really, you know, broke the back of the monarchy in some way. So what ended up happening is you, you've got all these sugar scientists, these sugar plantations, these people, and frankly, they brought in cane from outside and started growing it. And, you know, commodity works in Hawaii as long as you have cheap labor, which means pre-statehood. And remember, you've got to fight against the world's sort of worst position, positioned uh, shipping area. We're right. in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So... Let's uh, let's be real. You get into the commodity game and you're just not going to keep up. I mean, everywhere else has an advantage on Hawaii. It's amazing that it was ever a major thing. But in 2016, the last mill closed. And so, no, there isn't much sugarcane anywhere. And in 2016, I think the nearest mill to that one on Maui was 10 years before that. I mean, there was the sugar industry had been dying for over 50 years. So, no, finding like you know, plantation era cane wasn't actually really that high on the options list anyway. Yeah. After um, I hung out with you in Oahu, I was actually on the big Island for uh, five days. So I got to enjoy the real brunt of the Kona low. Uh, that was great timing on my, my part. It was like, let's see if I can make it to uh, Hawaii during a blizzard up on uh, Mauna Loa and, you know, torrential rains in Kona. But, um, but you know, I drove around quite a lot. And, and yeah, I didn't see any sugarcane whatsoever. I saw a lot of, uh, of you know, macadamia nut and all that because of Big Island being kind of the breadbasket of the state. And, yeah. uh, and I was just, I guess, a little bit taken back because after you and I had talked about that, you know, I, I expected to see a dwindling amount, but something. Um, we yeah. chatted with a little bit with um, one of the ladies at the hotel, and she had actually moved to Hawaii from the Philippines 45 years ago because her husband got a job on a sugar plantation yep. and, um, and died very young. So she actually still lives in a home that was purchased for her husband by the sugar company, um, yep. which is pretty, pretty cool uh, that it left that kind of thumbprint. But, it, you know, it kind of all faded away, like you said, because of, uh, you know, it's, it's expensive to ship and you can get it much cheaper in other places they're connected <laughs> to something. But exactly. uh, so where does that leave you with finding, you know, uh, these heritage canes? You know, we talked a lot about like the heirloom varieties that you're growing, um, you know, and obviously, you know, and maybe people don't know this, but, you know, the first kind of 
cane that we see in the world is from, you know, the Pacific in Papua New Guinea. So, you know, making its way through Micronesia, Polynesia, Melanesia. Um, how do you even figure out what is an heirloom variety when it was brought in, where you draw the line, right? Like I talk about this all the time in like food, especially Thai cuisine because of, you know, my restaurant and like, I just kind of hate the word authentic yeah. because, you know, you have to decide where the line is in the sand to be like, this is not authentic. And that is authentic. And in Thailand's a good example. You know, if you go back 300 years, wok cooking isn't authentic. So any stir fries would not be correct. If you go back 250 years, uh, well, I guess longer than that, actually, with this particular point, but like you go back to prior to the spice road, there wouldn't have been coconut in the curries. And so oh. like, where is it that you say, okay, this has been here for a really long time. This was brought here by the original settlers. And this is maybe brought here by the Europeans. You know, how is it that you go about that? Yeah, I mean, so A, you ask smarter people than yourself. <laughs> right. And you listen well, right? So like for, for us, it's, we were beginning this project at the same time Noah Lincoln was becoming Dr. Noah Lincoln at Stanford. He's a Hawaiian boy. He's interested in Hawaii food systems, which, you know, if you're not familiar with Hawaii food systems, it's such an interesting and wonderful thing. The Hawaiians were amazing farmers mm -hmm. and not heavily overworked. You think of this as like a fisherman's community, but they were actually way better farmers than they were anything else. It doesn't take away from the fishing skills, but incredible. So, so you ask guys like Noah as they're going through their, their studies and finding their way as it regards to Ko, or now he's, you know, really focused on some ulu, which is uh, breadfruit here in Hawaii mm -hmm. uh, and, and that. But, but the truth is you try to not put a box on it. We talk all the time about like the idea of like scientific intelligence versus indigenous versus just being like an open and intelligent person. Cause like you put a box on something and say, there are 34 Hawaiian canes, right? Right. Well, what about the other like 70 names that those canes were called by Hawaiians right. over the last hundred years? Like, no, there's, there's over a hundred canes. If you're respecting the language and these people, mm -hmm. there's, you know, look, I, I, there's a million ways to shake it. So the truth is you ask and you listen. So we talked to Noah Lincoln, you know, and, and we, we begged for cuttings from this and ge did genetic testing. And really when, when Noah was looking back at it, he's like, well, there's probably somewhere between two and 10 co that actually arrived on canoes actually got here with Hawaiians as they were traversing the sea from Tahiti, from Fiji, originally Papua New Guinea, probably. And that's probably what got here. But can we get down to those two to 10 noble canes? Well, not exactly. There's no written language here. We don't have anybody, you know, tracking this it's all oral history so what do you do all right well is it actually more or less hawaiian if it got here and then mutated for the last thousand years before contact right exactly uh, an, that was my point <laughs> you know? there's an argument to be made that the thousand years that it's living on these islands it's actually becoming more of here and less of somewhere else so it's really really brilliant and and the truth is and hopefully we're still going to find some canes that people think are extinct or didn't know existed, but are actually, you know, beautiful Hawaiian canes. I, I, I don't know where we'll find them, but there's a lot of places on these islands that people don't, you know, find themselves all sure. the time. Right. And so you've got a book for sale there in the uh, tasting room, 
which I was so excited about. In fact, I, I the exact thing I said to you when I gave a copy to my business partner, he's, he looked and said the exact same. He said, we've been looking at this for this for 10 years. I'm like, I know this is, it's perfect the way it's laid out. So, I mean, it is uh, solely about um, Hawaiian native cane, but it goes through, shows the photos, how it grows, response to, you know, the environment, all these fun things. But um, what I found interesting as I was flipping through is that you, it addressed exactly what you just mentioned about, well, going back, were these canes named something differently? Are we calling it? So the, the one that yeah. I'm thinking of that stands out is the Hina Hina, right? Yeah. And, and the book, it, I love how it's like, it's just, well, the modern Hina, we're calling it not Hina Hina because it was no. <laughs> historically something different. I thought that was a very interesting way to, to kind of phrase that as you're looking through. And so there's a, definitely that muddies the waters a lot. But sure. bringing that back around to being a rum distillery, you know, there's a double edge here, right? I mean, you would love to spend all of your time researching the sugarcane, but at the end of the day, you have to make juice. Yeah. <laughs> so how many of these canes are you guys growing? Because it's all estate production, if I remember right. You are yeah, not buying cane from anyone, right? No, everything's, everything's on our land. I mean, look, the only way you can guarantee you take care of farmers is to pay them yourselves and take care of them yourselves and make sure it's all good. If there are great people to work with and partners, we're not against it completely, but it's something we've never been actively pursuing because it just, we can't guarantee what we want to guarantee. Let's just sure. put it that way. Yeah. So, so are all of your um, sugarcane fields on Oahu or are you growing on multiple islands? Yeah, so everything's Oahu based. Uh, it doesn't have to be, but it's where I live. It's where my farm manager lives. So it's the easy place to check. Um, and frankly, we kind of enjoy that because people don't think of Oahu as a agricultural place. The big right. island gets a lot of love, you know, the island of Hawaii. Maui does as well, even Kauai. But, you know, Oahu's got plenty of land. And sure. really, I'd rather it be, you know, agriculture than more condos. Right. Yeah. And I definitely think that that's probably because Honolulu just overshadows the conversation when you are talking about Oahu. But yeah. I mean, where you are in that like kind of valley in between the two coasts is just uh, uh, it's magical. It's gorgeous, easy drive in. Uh, anybody that's going to be in Honolulu, I please just check it out and go visit, Kyle. It's very, very easy to get to. But For so sure. how many cane varietals of cane are you growing on the premises now or on the estate now? So we have 34 in the collection. We have 11 that we've done single varietal rums with. So we haven't been able to grow all 34 of them to production status. Mm -hmm. Like we don't, we don't have a quarter acre of everything. Um, we've gone a little bit more streamlined with some of them that we like, and we've planted larger fields, but we're slowly building it out. You know, you go from, one single cutting of a cane like Uahia Pele. And now we've got probably, you know, maybe 15 plants of it, something like that. So it'll slowly grow into a production size field. And, you know, we have Kea and Hina Hina that you mentioned, even though we don't call it not Hina Hina. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of, you know, joy on that side of thing, but yeah, we do 11 right now for single varietal production. So for anybody keeping track at home, we are kind of the craziest farm first distillery you can run across. A, we grow it ourselves. It's got to be heirloom Hawaiian cane. It has to be fresh juice and it's single varietal. So like 
try try to make a harder project, please. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and not only that, but you've got, you know, like because it's fresh cane juice, it's also the most the smallest segment of the market. Which yeah. for, a, for a small distillery like you guys, you know, that that works for now until for sure. expansion comes. <laughs> but you know, I, I think that's a good point to kind of highlight for a moment is that uh I had run across Kohana years ago. Uh, had to have been in the early days because it's not been around all that long. And yeah. um, but pretty much everybody I, I know that's rum geeks or even kind of viscerally in, in, in the rum and uh, circles, everybody kind of is aware of it, but hasn't visited. Right. And uh, I think the assumption is that you're a much larger distillery than you are. Uh, For sure. The names out there, your team's done a great job about brand recognition, but uh, it's not a large place. Uh, you have very few people working in production. A lot of your people kind of work in sales, right? Yeah. So we have, I, I, it's, we have more people on the farm than anything else. And then next to that is our tourism center, our tasting room. But our production. That is and, a huge tasting room, by the way. I was shocked is. about how big that was. <laughs> it's the old Del Monte General Store. We had to do something good with it. Yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, there are, so Tyler Johnson and Nick Sadowski are two distillers. Uh, you've got, you know, one or two bottling people right now we're down to one. So we've got, you know, three people working in like actual distilling production. And then you've got, you know, three of us on the sales brand and marketing side and then, you know, 13 farmers and then, you know, 10 people work in the front of house. So we're not tiny, but as far as like, like you said, to the rum making side of things, how many distilleries, do you know, that have, you know, two distillers that have, you know, kind of the, the impact that we've been able to have thus far and sure. a very small way, but good. good yeah. Way. I talked with Tyler a bit on my way out um, because yeah. all of y'all are pretty young. Um, you know, if I, if I don't say that, then it means I'm calling myself old because we're all about the same age, but I was, um, I, I'm just fascinated by being a part of this kind of project, particularly because of the single varietal, um, yeah. kind of mission that you are really putting into the bottle to try to highlight each cane individually. And there really aren't that many agricoles out there that are single varietal. I mean, obviously, Com Blue comes to mind from, um, yeah. I guess, and a lot of special bottlings, but uh, nothing that I can really think of that's a mass produced, like part of the core product, uh, you know, and to be able to work with something like that. And that's why I chatted with Tyler is like, I mean, that's kind of a dream job, you know, to be able to like play with all those individual uh, components all the time and, and really try to eke out what, what the cane wants to say. Yeah. And I, it, like it's glorious and also impossible, right? Cause you're, right. you're always learning something new and, and anytime we're maybe we're changing a, a small thing with, you know, some, some way that we use our apparatus and distillation or, Maybe it's a new farming technique or, or this or that. And any of those changes is massive. And then you have the big, huge variable, which is the cane differences. Right. And it's a living thing. So now you've got, you know, capital, you know, like real terroir, mm -hmm. not like, you know, some like pretend thing. You can actually find it in spirits. I know a lot of people feel a whole way about it, but like, come on, my guy, like it's a growing thing. It has, it, it has to be different. Right. And it, it, it is. So wonderful and also like sometimes impossible to wrap your head around because there's just a million iterations. 
Right. There's definitely a lot of variables you could play with. Um, you know, I always like that, you know, uh, the Combleu in Martinique is, is um, vintage labeled or, it's, and you know, the label changes every year. And uh, yeah. I know that's just something that would be impossible uh, in any other market. In fact, we don't see those kinds of labels in the U.S. You have to really examine your bottle to see where when it was distilled. But there are differences and that came from year to year. Uh, so, I mean, you talked about the terroir. I mean, what are you getting out of the soil there? I mean, it's a, uh, obviously they're volcanic islands. I don't think that's a secret to anybody. Um, so, you know, you've got very rich soil. In fact, driving through Oahu is just gorgeous because even the plots of land that are just been uh, turned over, it's just this beautiful, like glowing red, rich soil, uh, just very, very deep, like reddish brown. It's, it's, it's shower twice dirt. You know, when you get home, you have to shower twice because it's, it's <laughs> fine. It's like, it's got that reddish hue to it. So for, for us, because we only have so many farms, I can only give you so many points. Mm-hmm. And this is why like, hopefully as the Hawaiian rum renaissance occurs and as people start taking on growing cane and doing these things, which I hope happens uh, alongside of us, or it's just going to be us growing a lot more farms where we are seeing differences mostly based on sort of what is around and, and how that's impacting it. So like in our fields that are closer to the ocean, especially on the North shore during the winter season, they are far more salinic and they, they drive that sort of like, you know, that salty pop, even in the end distillate, it's a really cool thing to have added to it. And, and fantastic in our central Oahu plots that tend to be more around like the orchards and the fruits and vegetables and like the more like actual, like think like farmers market uh, farmers, a lot of that stuff's happening. A lot of some gentlemen farms, things like that, that tends to push way further into your fruity and your bright notes and, and that side of things. So really, really cool. We do have some fields that tend to give off really earthy vibes, but I I honestly believe it's more from the co in those cases because there are some really specific co that have a, a depth to them that goes to like a much darker place. I tend to love the really bright, high tropical, like the stuff that screams Hawaii out of the glass but we have some really, really interesting ones. Papa'a, which is the Hawaiian word for to burn or to hold fast. It looks like a burnt cane. And it's like, it's this earthy, you know, majestic thing with, with basically none of the lychee banana blossom, like none of those high notes. It's all this like low tone, you know, it, it really interesting. I remember you putting a glass in front of me that very much reminded me of like a Guadalupan uh, kind of with that earthiness, the mushroomy truffle, you know, almost like Dylan, uh, which we no longer can get um, no. in the U.S. So, but, uh, you know, like it's we, we had a really long conversation while I was there in the island and you had made a comment that, you know, you, you are making the effort. Everybody there is making the effort to let the sugarcane be the one variable, like everything else is held in st- strict stasis so that you can really kind of see what the sugar hand's bringing to the table. Um, You you know, how is that, that started with the fermentation, you know, uh, how's the cane being treated? Is it being hand harvested, machine harvested? And then, you know, what's the process going from there on into fermentation? Yeah. So right for right now, we still hand harvest everything. Uh, We will not be 
uh, as of April of this year, we actually have what was interesting about a, a dying sugar industry or a dead sugar industry is all the combines and harvesters are long gone. So none of that stuff exists here right now. So we had to actually buy from Louisiana, have it refurbed and then ship it on out here. So we have a nice big old John Deere combine coming to us soon. Uh, those guys just uh, made their headways with their, with their union stuff. So rah, rah, we're here to support uh, by, by a deer. Um, and then, oh, deer. yeah, why not? Um, and then, you know, for, for us, it's the reason to go from hand harvesting, which maybe sounds very romantic to all your listeners. And frankly, to me as well, like, Oh wow. Like it's, it's touched more often. It's, it's more beautiful. Look, I, I want farmers who can retire with me, mm-hmm. not that are, have broken backs and are just brutal. I'd yeah, rather rough work. Yeah. And, and, and it's such a silly thing to let like faux romanticism get in the way of like these men and women, both uh, in our fields actually are doing such hard work. We don't need to make it harder by like keeping that silly postcard image. Oh, look, like they're driving trucks and tractors. They're still, you know, hand feeding it through mills and those things but they're the ones caring for it every day. So it's hand cared for, but no, we're not going to hand harvest anymore. And I, and I, I'll, I'll fight anybody on the thinking that hand harvesting is better. If you guys want to go farm, you know, 350 acres of sugar cane with machetes, God, God bless you. Well, I think that's a very, I mean, it's so much rooted in the colonialist and, and native, you know, aspect of, you know, these kind of the, the, aborigines are out there doing everything by hand and you know like you said it's they romanticize it but also it's kind of in a very racist way you know and and classist way also you know like oh well you know that they do it the real way we use machines because we're white people and whatever but and so like you know letting those things go but you hear it all the time with all sorts of like harvesting and work and like oh they still do it by hand like you know, maybe they don't want to, <laughs> you know, maybe that's yeah. the option they've got. <laughs> Sometimes it's, you know, good to ask that critical question, especially if you're like, oh, they, they work so hard. I could never do that. You're like, well, should they be having to do it? Right. But right. That, that's, that's an interesting moment. And, and look, I, for years we've had, you know, people, you know, help us harvest and our farmers have obviously done it forever. I'm terrible at it, but I'll get out there and swing a machete. I'm, I, nobody wants me to. <laughs> right. Uh, Mostly the me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a totally different thing. And I know I took that way, way off subject. So I'll get back and talk no, about, I mean, it is important to address because it is one of those things that you still regularly see glorified in the pages of like rum reviews and like, Oh, it's still hand harvested, hand harvested. And you know, those yeah. stories are set out to that. And I'm not saying that it's always bad. There are certainly places that take care of their farmers. They want sure. to do things the way they've always done it, but there's no, uh, for, you know, every distillery like that, you've got three like in Nicaragua where they're not giving their workers water. They're, you know, not giving them breaks. And, and so, you know, it's not always this romantic thing. You know, sometimes it's just fucking driven labor. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, so we got the cane. It's it's not machine harvested at the moment, but it's soon to be by this fancy John Deere you've got coming in from Louisiana. <laughs> um, so then uh, h- how long does it take to kind of bring it in and get it crushed? So it'll it'll take... In a day right now, we'll harvest about four tons of sugar cane in an eight-hour day. That'll go down to about one hour uh, with the combine, which is pretty awesome. Um, And that includes setup time. And then that's going to get crushed immediately. Uh, I don't know how many people 
crush their cane in the field. Uh, I know that for a while we talked about being uh, what we thought was the only one. I'm sure it's, I'm sure there's a number of people. Anytime you say you're the only one, sure. uh, you're probably lying. Uh, <laughs> there are lots of smart people out there doing cool things. So um, we, we crush in the field. We do pitch inoculated yeast. So we have our own yeast. We love, but it's the same yeast over and over. It is uh, a boutique yeast. It's, it's, you know, cutesy lalimond, like, you know, our, our yeah, speaking to that variable, like you're holding the yeast even, you know, in, yep. that, in stasis. So you've got it every, the same every time. Yeah. And, and we do close top. So we don't even let in like the little bit of what hmm. other stuff could come in over the course of the week. We also ferment to dry uh, for those of you that uh, want to know what that means. We don't have a strict timeline uh, on our ferments. We just make sure that they all go to zero uh, or sorry, to one on the specific gravity. So essentially all of the sugar has been consumed. Mm -hmm. And the reason to do this as opposed to on the timeline of, you know, whatever, however you want to track yeast, but if you just say, oh, we do a 48 hour ferment and then you distill at that point, you're not using all of that sugar necessarily. A lot of times you are, but you might not be. And, and for us, we want to make sure it goes to dry and we're using every bit of what that co is. And it's twofold. Obviously, if you have sugar, you have more alcohol. So there is some monetary value there, but it is guaranteeing that all of that gets used. So that's eliminating another variable, which is you know, you deciding to pull at X, Y, or Z time because you think right. that's the, that's what's going to work best. Um, then we pitch it over into a hybrid still. We have a, a very American contraption, which is a pot with a helmet, got a little agitator in there, just plumbing away at it, start to boil it up and run it through uh, usually uh, four plates on our rectification column, uh, sometimes three, uh, never more than four, unless we're trying to make hand sanitizer, uh, like <laughs> a few years ago. You'd come into play last year. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, that's, uh, we, we do <laughs> the fancy collection method is, you know, a, a couple of polys and, uh, Tyler, Nick, whoever else is, uh, on, in charge that day, their palate. I mean, there's, there's a fancy, very, very fancy, uh, thermometer and hydrometer. So there's no like, you know, chemical analysis, nothing crazy happening. Although I've been listening to some people recently and having been a recovered chemist myself, that's what my degree's in. I would like to probably, uh, pay more attention to some of that post artistic step, not before. Sure. Well, that's interesting. I mean, because you've hit the ground running so quickly. I mean, there's like in a very small amount of time to have 11 different rums coming out. Uh, you've got uh, a blended rum as well, right? Um, yeah, one, so, a few. So one. So once a the, year, we, we have to harvest. Or, no, so no, no, we no, have. Is, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, no, you're good. So Kea Kea is uh, a single varietal, Kokea. Right, right, right. right. Um, we do, we're about to release our 2021 collection. So when you, when you hold plots that have all of the varietals, if you let Hawaiian cane grow for multiple years, it'll actually just fall over and lodge and try to regrow. Mm -hmm. 
So we harvest our whole land uh, each year, cut it back, keeps the cane healthy. It also gives us more data points. Mm. We understand how more of these plants are growing and, and and just just smarter every year. So that's what I was talking about. Is like with the growth rate at which you've already kind of undergone all of this between single varietals, blended, you know, uh, the distillation, fermentation, everything. Like to be able to do all of that in like what six years, seven years, and then you know, understandably, you don't have all of the systems in place with you know all of your gas spectrometers and like all (laughs) all the fun toys because I mean you've. You know, that's where the, the balancing act gets kind of tricky, uh, you know, putting in the right amount of time into developing new products at the same time, trying to make sure you're moving what you've got, which I'm assuming isn't as much of an issue with the size of your distillery, because there's obviously demand out there for it. Um, yeah. Now, is this available on the mainland at all yet? Yeah, so it's available in California. It's available in Florida. And then there are a couple reciprocal states that allow us to ship. Oh, cool. Um, Not as many as there should be. We should be more United States than, uh, you know, different tax codes, but whatever. I'm I'm on that soapbox today. I'll, I'll stay away from that one and uh, I'll try not to get in an agricole fight too. Uh, (laughs) I mean, you know, that would be a big, um, I mean, not only would it be a boon, that would be crushing. If you got, you know, if you had 50 states, you know, distributing your product, there, there would be with the team you have, there'd be no way to keep up. No. And, and honestly, we've, we've been really cognizant of that the whole time. And having been in the hospitality business for so long, our bread and butter has always been our bar partners. And so as we grow into new markets, you try not to grow so fast that these people right. who want to and do support you end up not being able to get what, what it is you do and what it is you do well. And that happens all the time. Hey, you know, you, you support a small uh, producer and then all of a sudden they launch into five or six more states. Well, I, I mean, one that I wouldn't have a problem mentioning would be like Dogfish Head, you know, yeah. in particular, like when they got that TV show or whatever, they expanded into so many markets all at once. They had to like withdraw out of some markets and Indiana was deemed as not that important of a market. When oh, we've been awesome. out there on the line selling this shit for years. Uh, we've been selling it since the, the mid 90s. And to see that go away really pissed off uh, a lot of folks in Indiana. And now that it's back in the state, um, I don't know what their sales numbers are, but I can tell you, you don't see it like you used to. I think it pissed yeah. a lot of people off and they're like, yeah, it's not worth it. You know, and I, so, I, you I, know, I, you do run those kinds of risks when you're when you're doing those sorts of things. Um, you know, as as you're growing out, I mean, what is the, I guess, the vision for the next group of of products to come out i mean i know you've always got a lot of things in the works but is it bringing more single varietals in um you've got some like stuff in barrels you're going to be bringing out because i know that you're doing some work with like indigenous woods yeah yeah so there's a number of different things but key above all is actually just getting more access to all of our friends across the u.s and the world so Mm. growing in the right way, more cane to be able to service more markets is, is definitely way, way up there tippy top, right? Because I do think a lot of people know our name and, and, and have heard it, but not that many people have had actual access to it. I mean, like right. have the ability to order from, you know, a proper supplier in their market and get behind it and support it and see what it's really about. Because while coming to Kohana and, and visiting Kunia is it obviously what we'd like everybody to do. We think that when you open our bottle, you get 
a little transportation to Hawaii anyway. So whether it would be in, you know, Indiana or, you know, Florida or Texas or wherever, I, I love the idea of somebody opening up Kohana and feeling a little connection to where we are. So we're trying to grow our cane and therefore grow our rum brand enough to get to that, to that point. Right. Um, that's number one. Number two is a, a couple new marks uh, that'll come out. We, it's funny for, for years and years, I, I told people we'd never do anything, but you know, a, a pretty low uh, ABV white rum at 80 proof, because I'm like, look, every, everybody, yes, with bad rums, it's all washed out at 80. It doesn't have to be like, you can make great spirits at 80. You can make agricultural spirits at 70. Look at tequila. When you go to Mexico, mm-hmm. you're not drinking 80 or a hundred. You're drinking some, look at, you know, shochu and like, there's, there are things that can do this. And I get it. I, I love cast strength stuff as well. But, uh, Tyler, our distiller, uh, convinced me, uh, via both of our palates and his intelligence, uh, to start doing a hundred proof. So we'll, we'll do a 50%, a little bit more for like our traditional, like rum lovers that can put it head to head with some of our friends in the Caribbean, uh, in those French islands down there or in, you know, other places that make sugarcane based rum and, and see what it's like. So that'll come out. We'll do a hundred proof. And then we have, like you said, we have some indigenous woodwork that we've done uh, most notably koa, which is an endemic uh, acacia. So predating humanity on the islands, we had a, a wonderful tree that's known as koa. Um, so that's one of them. And then we have, you know, our barrel, our big barrel program with, you know, used bourbon barrels and American oak barrels as well. You know, you said, you mentioned, you know, kind of being able to like put it side by side with some of the Caribbean sugarcane based drums. And I'm definitely seeing, and maybe this is just because, you know, I'm looking for it uh, because, again, it is one of my favorite styles. Um, but, you know, having been in Asia right before the pandemic for for five weeks um, in Southeast Asia in particular, you know, going through uh, Vietnam and um, Thailand, of course, you know, I'm definitely seeing a lot more of these distilleries popping up that are going, you know, with the fresh sugarcane juice. So it's, you know, I don't want to I don't want to curse it by saying maybe it's on its way to having a moment, but. I do genuinely hope that we can kind of see these brands come to market and be a little bit more available, including yours, because to be able to taste as you addressed, you know, that, that terroir, that sense of place, like this tastes like Hawaii, this tastes like Thailand, you know, this tastes like Martinique, you know, it's, it is really exciting. And I know there's, you know, arguments over the word agricole for me, it really does explain to me what's in that bottle. You know, when I see that, and I think I understand that that's your point of putting it on the bottle. Like that's, it's, you know, conveying what is inside that bottle um, because in Thailand, they don't put that. And it's like, just says sugar cane beverage or something, something's ridiculous. It's not informative whatsoever, but, uh, <laughs> but they can't even use the word rum there because, um, Oh my God, who makes the, the, I'm blanking on the name of like the huge rum brand in Thailand, but they actually own the trademark rights to putting rum on the bottle from what I understand. And oh, that's so all amazing. The other, yeah, it's, it's, well, that's Thai corruption, I guess. I don't know. It's wow. the liquor industry. There's pretty, pretty wild. So, but anyhow, uh, you know, let's, let's talk about those uh, agricole folks. Um, yeah. you know, so there are very strict rules to be able to put Martinique on their bottle. And, and if you listeners out there want to check it out, we've had been on Ben Jones on the show a couple of times, and we've talked at, at great length about uh, 
uh, Ron Clement and, and the Spear Bomb portfolio, but um, they have, you know, their their designation, the AOC French designation, that where they have to follow rules just like you would in a champagne or cognac or or burgundy to be able to put that on the bottle. And so, and if you don't play by those rules, you don't get to put that on the label, which most people would think, well, who gives a shit? Just do whatever you want. And, you know, that's your own thing. But, you know, there's, it, that comes with a uh, a little bit of price suffering because to be able to put burgundy on a bottle of wine versus, you know, putting Pinot Noir on a wine, it, it definitely commands that extra premium and, um, and gets you more access as well. So, you know, what are the kinds of things that you are the most happy about, I guess, that you can do that they cannot do there? Because we've talked about this with Ben before, and there's definitely, and he will never point out the exact points, but he would love to see, you know, a little bit more flexibility in some ways, um, you know, because even the fermentation is controlled. So, I, I mean, is there a way you can kind of do a, a quick comparison of how they're doing it versus you? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I, I can't speak because there are multiple distilleries and they are sure. able to have, they are able to have differences. But the, the thing I'll say really is this, there's a lot of beauty in protecting important things. Mm-hmm. When you protect them at the utmost degree that you don't allow for any sort of growth or, or changes to happen. Uh, I think you can, I think you can find yourself in, in a bit of a hole. So for us, we're able to use a pot still, they have to use a Creole column, right? Mm-hmm. We're able to, you know, ferment in really whatever way we want it. I could ferment with whatever yeast, however, whatever do this. We do a single pressing. We don't do three pressings plus adding water. We don't have to have somebody from the AOC come by and, and check on every which way. And, and really like, I think there's a beauty in being able to put AOC Martinique on your bottle. You know, there's a reason we didn't put like, you know, we put the H in rum uh, on our right. thing. Like that, right. we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. Cause we're not, we're not French, but the word agricole, like it plays to it. And I can understand if it was misused uh, or if it's perceived to be, I, I get that a little bit, but the point is communication and, and getting it. So for us, we're able to be a little bit different uh, in a lot of ways. And, and for us, it's, it's chasing down delicious flavor. Like I said, we use a pot still, we're able to use 34 varietals of heirloom Hawaiian cane. That's by choice. We could use whatever sugar cane we grew in Hawaii, we don't have a rule, right? Whereas, you know, AOC Martinique has, I think, 13 to pick from. Yes. It used to be 12 before uh, the person from Nissan was on the board and added number 13, which is its own, like, fight there. And Right. The and that's so, where these debates come about. I mean, we're seeing this happening right now in Barbados um, between Foursquare and uh, and Ferrand or uh, West Indies Rum Distillery now because – there's arguments on both sides, right? You want to preserve the history and the integrity of the product. And then you, but you don't want to, you know, legislate it so much that it stifles any sort of, uh, you know, new products coming out. And so there's always the debate of innovation versus conservation. And, uh, you know, there's definitely a middle ground, but I think that you always would find um, someone feeling stifled, (laughs) you know, and yeah. I know that there's a lot of people in the, in the French Caribbean, you know, that um, like the freedom that you get in Guadeloupe versus Martinique, yeah. you know, very close proximity, but totally different distillation techniques. For sure. And I, I think there's something really to be said about the choice of the rum community and that 
it doesn't need to be an either or and the, in the either or situation, we kind of end up in, in a bad spot and I don't, I'm not going to lean into global current events or anything like that. I don't have any interest in being political, but yeah. If it's a black get them in a tree of folks, <laughs> they'll get you covered. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's brutal because it's like you're, you're taking all the joy out of this wonderful, wonderful thing. And for the wrong reasons. Look, I don't like people that are being disingenuous and I think they should be called out. Sure. But I don't necessarily think you should limit what they're able to do. I mean, you have this fight happening in Mexico right now where guys are like turning their noses up at getting classified as mezcal Mm -hmm. because you know what like they got to jump through all these silly hoops for no reason what makes it so screw it you know what i just make this agave distillate like i'm dope forget it like and if that's what ends up being is you know we're just we're just going to confuse things even more yeah it can definitely get tricky i mean i love that um you guys are doing what you're doing there on oahu now are there other um sugarcane rums coming out of hawaii yeah, so we have um, on the island of Hawaii, there's a company called Kuleana. That's right. They I don't make, remember the name uh, of the it's right, Kuleana. Yeah, and they make a um, they make a number of blends, and they have a mark that they do. So they have that they have kind of an interesting view of it, where they do a lot of like importing and blending rums, and then they have their rum as well, which sometimes gets blended. And sometimes gets uh, bottled by itself. So they have some really interesting stuff going on uh, regarding kind of like aggregating and collecting cool flavors. So they, they're there. There are other people that are talking about it and, and marketing it. Um, Kuliana is the only one that I've seen their actual co being harvested. And so I, I'm, I'm able to say, yeah, the other guys may be doing it but because i've seen so many uh unfortunate decisions made in hawaii alcohol until i see cane being crushed and turned into booze i I have a hard time saying someone else is doing it there are other rum companies that did molasses or Mm -hmm. sugar wash or things like that so like there's koloa there's uh old lahaina uh, maui um yeah so there's there's some of that but it's really it's us and Kuleana right now with fields and and they have a they have a really fun project happening on the big island. So yeah, they they started really a few years after interesting us. for such a small state and like you said, very isolated from the mainland to be seeing, you know, uh and also obviously well outside the Caribbean, uh yeah. where we typically see these kinds of distillates, other than like Mauritius and Reunion Island, but which even, deserve even to be mentioned. Away. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. They deserve their mention though. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, like I said, I just immediately fell in love and I'm sure, uh, you know, when we wrap up today, I'll think of all the 45 other questions that I had forgotten <laughs> to ask you, but I mean, I've just been really thinking about it a lot. Um, I loved visiting the place. Obviously you're in a, in a, a beautiful part of Oahu. Um, but just that, the passion that from everyone, even, even your tasting room folks, like everyone was there because they really wanted to honor the cane and the culture. Yeah. No, it's, and it's, look, if if it isn't for our people, we're nothing. I mean, we've got, we obviously cherish the co, but whether it's the farmers all the way to the bartenders in town pouring it, everybody's able to be proud of it because, you know, we don't bullshit. It's Mm -hmm. all, it's all really straightforward. So the book that I picked up 
uh, was a, a work by a gentleman at what, University of Hawaii, right? I believe. Or, so it's, it's published by the University of Hawaii. Published Press. by, okay. Yeah. Um, like I said, I've been looking for that book. I'll definitely leave a link down below. Is that something that people can buy directly through you? Yeah, they can buy it from our website. So it's the book is Ko. Uh, it's K-O and over the O, there's a little line, which is conveniently known as the Kahako. So K-O and it's by Dr. Noah Lincoln. Uh, he is phenomenal. And yeah, the, the shorter the distance is between him and uh, your dollars, I'm sure the better it is for him. Right, so, exactly. You know, and that's we buy always... direct from UH Press. So yeah. Yeah, I like to ask that because uh, visiting your tasting room, there's a, a ton of products available that were all by uh, local artisans. And, you know, we kind of went a little crazy. Having to package <laughs> yeah, up a bunch of stuff, <laughs> but um, you know, my wife wanted to support as many people as possible that were there on the island, and so uh, I, you know, obviously, you can see from the moment you walk through the doors that it's really important that you're supporting the people, the art behind it, the culture. Uh, so, what is the website where they can find you? Super easy. Everything we do is Kohana Rum, Kohana Rum.com, Kohana Rum on Instagram, and it's spelled K O. H A N A R U M. So yes. you can find all over. Uh, if you're looking for me, you can't find me anywhere, but you can email <laughs> me at Kyle at Kohanarum.com. I'm I'm nowhere else other than that, but that's where I am. No, it was uh I really appreciate you taking the time out for me twice now, uh you know, in the last two weeks. And I can't wait to come back. Uh, my one of my bartenders had actually just been there last year and uh, was super pumped about the about the place. But he did, kind of did the public tour, and I I got the little bit more behind the scenes, which was amazing. You know, so awesome. we've been talking about it a lot, and um, you know, he's a big fan of several of your products. And so, you know, when you're uh, when you expand out to Indiana, you've definitely got a, a team here that's willing to put it on the shelves immediately. No doubt. And can we give a shout out to our brother uh, Drew for? Uh, uh, yes. Drew, yeah. thank you so much. Uh, Drew Garrison, link me up with Kyle here. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, as is such a small community in the uh, hospitality world, um, he hit me up when he saw that I was heading to Hawaii, which was kind of what I was like fishing for when I made the announcement. I was like, I don't have any connections. And uh, he's like, hey, do you know Kyle? I'm like, I do not. And he's like, okay, I'm going to shoot you an email. going to copy him. We're going to get it done. So awesome. yeah, that was uh, very, very cool of him to do that. So Again, it's just, um, you know, especially nowadays in this kind of very difficult time that we're all going through in hospitality and uh, the food and beverage world in general, um, you know, we definitely um, need to stick together and support each other in every way that we can so that, uh, that we're all still around in 10 years and we can buy these products that we're so passionate about. For sure. For well, sure. I appreciate you, you coming on the show, Kyle. It was super fun. I, I promise I won't beg you for another hour of your time next week <laughs> at least then i'm then i can think of I'm, you might be getting text messages but <laughs> there you go there you go i appreciate you having me on it thank you so much thank you so much man we'll talk to you soon Shoots. Bye.